Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. We throw the word stressed around like it's a decent excuse for why we retreat within ourselves or cop an attitude with others. Similarly, when our performance in the weight room, on field, or at work is lackluster, we often blame it on stress. Dr. Richard Citrin is here to let you know that you and your stress are not special. You are not a unique snowflake. Everyone endures varying degrees of stress on a regular basis, and what's more is we were meant to experience stress. In fact, we were built for it. But, quote, stress management is an overused term with false implications. When faced with overwhelming mental, physical, and emotional obstacles, we can actually train ourselves in the practice of resiliency. How do we achieve this in sport, business, and life? Dr. Citrin will feed you baby birds. Just stay tuned. This is episode 264. What is up? It is time for another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength, Strength and, and Conditioning. conditioning. Ing, ing, ing. Ing. We're rolling into this episode ready to bounce forward into some stressful situations. Talking about resiliency? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, I think when it comes to stressful situations, I think Luke has humor. I think text just shuts down and goes mm-hmm. into his... Uh, Dark cave. He just goes in, like yesterday. And finds solutions. I was trying to put text in a stressful situation yesterday, mm-hmm. harassing him, and you know what he did? He just turned off. When? Mm-hmm. Yesterday. Well, how you let the team down, how we discuss you letting the team down. Well, not just the team, but mostly everybody. Pretty much everybody. <laughs> and you know what? And, and the best is he was just like, oh, girl smiles, and he just kind of hid. I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. Snarf, snarf, I need my snacks. Ladies and gentlemen, this episode of Power Athlete Radio is brought to you by the Power Athlete Symposium, the Ooh. premier symposium in Austin. No, it's the premier symposium in strength conditioning in, in Austin, Austin, Texas. In December. In December. And uh, tickets are on sale right meow. So check it out, powerathletehq.com slash symposium. We are looking at anywhere from 10 to 12 speakers maybe. Uh, does that sound right, guys? Still ironing out those speakers. Uh, some of the who's who of Power Athlete Radio. Some people you've never even heard of, maybe. Maybe even people that aren't people at all. Maybe they're cyborgs and robots. Maybe they're those two penguins John keep talking about. Uh, they're going to make an appearance. Huh? Huh? You mean the penguins that walked from Antarctica to get on the ark? <laughs> it's sw- <laughs> penguins can swim. And there are penguins in Australia, Tasmania, and New Zealand. Well, yeah, they're different species. And Cape... Oh, so... Yeah, yeah, they all swim. Yeah, so they all just, a bunch of penguins just swam to get on the ark. Yeah, Enough with the penguin talk, people. <laughs> <laughs> Check it out, powerathletehq.com slash symposium, and you're going to have all the info you want there. But if you haven't heard of this event, what are you? where have you been? It's basically taking over the world in December. This in is Austin. a three-day speaker event mixed with some practical sessions. I like to call it a, an extravaganza. Extravaganza. Three-day speaker extravaganza where it's laughs, loves, hugs, knowledge. cries. Knowledge is power. That is the theme. And all proceeds go to our 501c3 charity, Wade's Army. Right? So that, we're not going out buying that party barge yet. We're still shuttling all of the proceeds into our charity, Wade's Army. And we have a bitchin' auction coming, oh, so God. we're going to have a killer auction with yeah, so some amazing great, things. Great point, John. So d- not only do ticket sales, proceeds from ticket sales go in, we have a silent auction held Friday night, which is honestly was fucking awesome not last so, year. Not so silent auction. Shh. Wink, wink. It's a silent, wink, wink, not so silent auction. And uh, we're probably going to have, how many items do we have last year? 12, 15? 
30. 30? Well, we're going to have 31 this year because that's how we do it. We step it up. And it's going to be one epic fucking item in there. You cannot miss it, people. And no, you can't bid. Oh, well, I'm not going to go. Can I bid online? No. You got to be in the room. You got to be throwing your name down. You got to have John's daughters calling you out for being a little bitch, not uh, bidding high enough. Or writing your name with <laughs> Texas Day's uh, high, yeah, high they, numbers. They wrote Texas name on there on everything. <laughs> I'm like, go write Texas in there. Uh, but if Remember, you, you, you can't take it with you, McQuilkin. And not to confuse the situation, folks, because it's a great experience. It's a great event. It's it's gonna sell out. Um, but if you haven't heard of Wade's Army, it's our 501c3 charity. We stood up in 2012 to honor our fallen hero, uh, Wade De Bruin, who fell victim to the most devastating pediatric cancer, neuroblastoma. So, Tex, give us a little bit. So, Wade's Army started. John, John and his wife Kate started Wade's Army, and it was kind of in respect to their friend Heather De Bruin, who had twins, and then their Wade lost his life to this this horrible cancer. And then the more we learn about it every single year, and the more we attempt to kind of give back to that community, the more we see that there's not a lot of funding that went towards really any pediatric cancer research. And there's really only attempts in terms of treatment, treatment done on adults to children. Mm-hmm. We know there are almost two different cancers that these kids face. So we're aiming to do some exciting things and turning... I guess the tides for this pediatric cancer, one of which is really educating parents on the impact of nutrition, especially when you're facing a cancer treatment. Mm-hmm. Your nutrition needs to be on point because your immune system is its really the last line of defense. Mm-hmm. And so the direct connection between nutrition, so we got some cool things we're ironing out for that, but look for that impact, and then we're really creating awareness, one, for the cancer itself, but also kind of pediatric nutrition mm-hmm. so guys if you want to contribute wadesarmy.org if you want to go to this freaking epic extravaganza contribute via that powerathletehq.com slash symposium but enough about us enough about the symposium uh, what we have today is the author of The Resilience Advantage, a member at one of our Block One coaches Tony Foo's gym we have Dr. Richard Citron and he is here to drop some knowledge on us well, guys, it's great to be joining you today. Uh, I am. Uh, I got. I found out about Power Athlete through my through my uh, CrossFit coach Tony Fusero up at Alpha Athletics here in Pittsburgh, and uh, you know Tony just kept calling me a Power Athlete, and uh, and pretty soon as the conversation ensued, he said, you know, I, if you're going to be a Power Athlete, you better talk to Tex. <laughs> oh, nice. So, uh, so we connected that way and it was great to do that. And I had, you know, when I start, first started working out at, at Alpha, which was um, just last November, you know, I made the discovery for myself that I've been working, I've been working out at the gym for a long time and I'm an older guy working out for a long time, but I've been doing the same thing. And in my work, you know, the same thing is going downhill. That's failure. I'm always looking to do better. I want to do more. I want to learn more. And so what was the challenge for me? And then, and then I, I looked into CrossFit a couple of years ago, but I hadn't really pursued it at all. So uh, Alpha is close to my home, and I went over there, and, and, and it has been really a transformational experience for me. I'm just enjoying it so much. I look forward uh, to working out, and I started having this conversation with Tony about my work in resilience and stress. I'm an organizational psychologist, although I've had uh, both clinical practices, corporate practices, and now I work as an independent consultant to businesses and individuals 
around how to deal with challenges and adverse situations they experience and confront, and how to turn those experiences into wins and successes for themselves. Uh, and that's been the focus of my work. And a couple of years ago, I uh, decided to put my, my writing and ideas down in paper and, and wrote this book called The Resilience Advantage, which is really about transforming the way we think about stress in our lives. Uh, you know, as a psychologist, I had been talking to people about stress for a long time. And what I discovered was, and I, I have so, several funny stories about it, is that the model we have to think about stress is called management. We talk about the stress management model. And that to me is a flawed idea about stress. And the reason is, and when I do workshops, I tell people to hold up a pen, uh, you know, about shoulder level, go ahead and hold up a pen or something, or, you know, don't use your, yeah, there you go. Uh, I'm not sure about Buddha there, but go ahead and drop it. It's Darth Buddha. Drop it. Okay, now let's repeat that again. We want to be scientific. We want to make sure we're repeating it. Drop it again. Okay, great. And that happened. It happened twice. What happened? It fell. And uh -huh. why did it yeah. fall? Uh, gravity. And uh, well, you, gravity. No, no, no. you let go because of it. Because not gravity, There's a, we're on a flat disk flying through accelerating <clears throat> through space perpetually. So it's actually it, inertia. Since, so is, the is the this centripetal force? I think the pen, Is this centripetal force? Because we're on a disk, we're spinning, so shouldn't it technically be no, moving? No, no, no. The, the disk is going up. I didn't drop the pen. <laughs> the earth moved. Uh, we're kidding, yes, uh, Doc. But that, no, that is, that, is, that is a very complex and... And as John said, a cerebral uh, description of something that the rest of us call gravity. <laughs> well, that's if you believe that uh, gravity exists. And there are certain people in this space, in this planet, that believe gravity does not exist. Yeah, we like even to make fun of them all even the though we are, Even though we are a, a sphere orb that has a, a, an iron ore in it that's spinning, so therefore it's creating a magnetic field that's creating gravity, oh. which does not seem conspiracy, that complicated. Conspiracy theory number 762. Oh. All right, let's work with oh. that one. Yeah, yeah let's do that. Yeah, people, <laughs> I'm like, it isn't that complicated. I learned about this in high school. No, Doc, you know, sorry to dis derail you. Keep going. No, no, that's good. You know, in fact, I lived in Texas for 25 years up in Fort Worth. Uh, so I know many of those people who don't believe in gravity lived in Texas. So mm. I'm very, very familiar with that. Okay. They're also the same <laughs> so, people that believe the Earth is 6,000 years old. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, this well, is one so, of them sitting right here. So, you know, so what I say about, the, about resilience, about stress management, is the same phenomenon exists about stress as it does about gravity, which is that gravity is a physical imperative. You can't keep it from happening. It's going to, you're gonna fall back to the earth if you jump up or if you jump off a building or if you drop your pet, it's gonna to return to the earth. Stress is a biological imperative. You don't, you don't manage stress in any way, shape or form. Stress actually manages you in the same way gravity manages us. So that is a fundamental mind shift that I make with people, which is accept the fact that you are going to be stressed, you are going to have ways that you deal with it effectively and some ways you don't deal with effectively. And the key is to really recognize that and then to build a model for yourself that doesn't suck you into how the stress drains your energy, but instead recognize that we're built for resilience, not for just managing our stress. But there's, there's gotta be, I mean, there are psychological stressors, right? You're just saying that they manifest themselves biologically. Yeah, no, there absolutely are stressors. And what people try to do is to minimize them or say, I'm not going to get stressed, or I can handle my stress. And the truth is that, you know, if a car uh, plows through your box there, uh, you're going to be stressed. You can't keep that from happening. So the more we accept the reality that stress is a part of our lives, the less we have to battle it.
Well, I mean, isn't stress a natural part of our existence? I mean, I I can't imagine any point in which my life where stress wasn't some form of factor. Well, as a nihilist, John, I can tell you that I care about nothing. (sighs) No? No, I mean, stress is a, uh, you know, I mean, I I wish I could say that for most people, you know, achievement and wanting to be great and all that, I mean, drives everybody to get up every morning. But I think the way we've designed or this, you know, what's been necessarily heaped on us is something that, uh, you know, stress is definitely an indicator and really a driving factor. I mean, if you don't get up and go to work and earn your salary that day or, you know, that week or that month, then the stress of not paying your bills and creditors calling and this, I mean, all these things are factors. So I think what we do is we kind of start working in towards a a direction to necessarily manage or minimize. Like I know if I go to work and I, I make money, then I can remove that stress. Um, you know, Tex has chosen to not be married. So he's eliminated that stress in his life. He it's doesn't great, have John. kids. I mean, Luke has since got married last week. It's a week, lot less stress. And, <laughs> and now he's going to <laughs> enter the, the stress of married life, and then you're going to have kids, and you're going to have a whole new stress. No, got a system, John. Oh. You're the babysitter. Yeah. <laughs> you're just going to drop him off here? Oh, boy. Just bring uh, him to the box there. Uh, but, I mean, uh, Doc, stress is, um, uh, you know, people always, you know, when they discuss stress and they look at it, they uh, always put it in such a negative light. And I don't think stress is necessarily a negative thing. I think stress is sometimes good because it kicks you in the pants and gets you moving in the right direction. Um, I I wish everybody on this planet was intrinsically motivated and everybody Mm -hmm. had these desires to be great and they just did everything to, you know, for some utopian society. But that isn't how the world works. But I think this is the, the driving force behind resiliency, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. John, John, you're saying it exactly right, which is that the, and, and the, the, the problem is that we've taught people to have this attitude around stress, which is that stress, it isn't, it isn't that it's necessarily just bad. It's horrible. So people say, I'm so stressed at work, followed by, I can't handle it. And the point that I make about it, as you just said, is we have to have stress in our lives to motivate us and get us going. And if we can change that model around so that we see stress as something that's good, unless it becomes so overwhelming that it breaks our systems down, we could talk about that in a few minutes, we actually want to embrace our stress. So when you go to work and your boss says to you, I have a new project that I need to have you work on, instead of rolling your eyes and saying, oh my God, do I really have to do that? You said you, you can change yeah. mindset to say, okay, you know, this, this is going to add some extra burden to me and it's probably going to be a good opportunity for advancement and who knows what I might learn and who I might meet. And then you might negotiate with your boss to say, what are you going to take off my plate? So you can have strategies for that. But instead of, instead what people do is they go, oh my God, I can't believe he's going to ask me to do something else. This place sucks. Doc, do you know what we call those people? Turkeys. Turkeys or donters. So we say, I always say what we say. I want donters. you to be a doer. Don't be a donter. And uh, the people that we run into that are in that uh, donter mentality are the ones that I think, um, you know what, I, uh, just on a side note, I always thought about this in that um, if people don't have stress, they tend to uh, manufacture stress. I was friends with some guys that were, you know, multi-billionaires. Um, you know, their dad was a billionaire, and they were had every advantage in the world. And the amount of trouble and stress that they caused to themselves, that they manufactured in their own lives, because people would be like, oh, if I had money, I wouldn't have any stress. These guys had more stress than anybody had ever been around, and it was 100% manufactured. Like, the, the way that they created it. And I remember thinking, like... 
these guys should have no stress. They don't have to worry about money. They don't have to worry about where they live. I mean, they take, you know, private jets. It's not like they got to go to the airport. And uh, yet the amount of stress and the, what they did to their lives in terms of just like creating nonsense, I was like, oh, my God, dude, I would never want to be in these guys' situations. So, I mean, yeah, which, so it, yeah. it, is stress just a natural phenomenon where if even if you don't have it, people create it because it's something that's in, <laughs> that just is a piece of who we are? Yeah, there's, you know, there was some research done many years ago that talked about the um, uh, kind of the level of intensity of stress. And it's kind of a normal bell-shaped curve. Uh, but on the left side of the curve, uh, what you have is, is understimulated, that if you don't have enough stimulation, you're going to create something. Otherwise, you just have boredom uh, and you can't function. And, and most people don't like that. So they'll look to add some activity and action. Uh, into their lives. And, and you're right, there's a mistaken belief that if you don't have stress there, if you don't have stress, then um, uh, then somehow your life will be perfect. But just the opposite is true. Without stress, there's, there's, no, there's no joy in your life. There's no challenge to what you're doing. And, and I think the biological idea of resilience, which is we're really, bait, we're really built to take on challenges, is much more interesting and exciting to do. We want to, you know, why do you, why do you start a business? Uh, why do you why do you work out when you work out? I mean, these are it's easier to sit at home and do nothing. Uh, now, not everybody has that attitude, but I think the vast majority of people have the idea and attitude that they want to do more, they want to be more, they want to achieve more. Those are the people I want to hang around with. And, and the, I don't know if you were saying donters or doters. Donters, don't donut, donut, donut. no donters. I, donters. And, and, and I, I don't even know where we got this. Wasn't it from, from a movie? No, that's from a, a man, a painting game starring The Rock, Mark Wahlberg, and <laughs> somebody. Is, is that where we got it? Do be a doer, don't, don't be, be a donter. donter. Yeah. But don't, oh, it, no. it was at the self help thing yeah. he went to. Ah, that's right. Doc, but you know, I'm, I'm a. F- can you help me build some scope around the term stress? Because I feel like we can justify a lot of things as stress. Is stress an input, an output, a state, both? all i mean is is there things that we would we might confuse as stress that aren't yeah so stress is a bio, stre- stress is a biological response to any event that occurs so the event itself is neutral uh you know it's really our perception of how we experience stress and the body's response to stress is the release of of hormones like adrenaline and cortisol which are designed to help the body respond to that event by either running, fighting, or freezing, staying, you know, playing possum and covering yourself up. Um, and the, the event itself is, is, is just an event that occurs. And that's why, you know, one person could uh, experience something and not see it as being stressful at all, and somebody else can see it as being very stressful for them. So it's almost like a process, right? You have input and output. Right. Uh, but it's perception. Yeah, because there's biological um, yeah. there's well, biological but, stress where like five pounds for a little cashy could be heavy and stressing his system. But for a beefcake like myself. Well, no, but I mean, uh, I mean, the doc and I think at least the way I'm, I'm interpreting it is. Uh, yeah, you school know, us up, doc. Like, no, I mean, just just my, my perception is uh, uh, we create the lens that we look through for stress mm-hmm. because, you know, something that might be stressful for one person, like you said, isn't stressful for the other. So it's almost like the perception, which if it's per, if, if it's perception of stress, that's kind of gauges it. Then and what he's saying is that we can change our perception of stress. Correct. And That's if correct. we can find yeah. if, if there's uh, different ways of, of, I guess, managing or, or kind of viewing it, like you made a great point. Some Somebody goes into a job and it's like, oh, this is awful. Somebody else, uh, the people I want to be around, the people are like, great, let's crush it. This is a new opportunity. This is another way for me to avail myself, which uh, 
I don't like to be around the first type of person where it's like, oh, so I gotta, we, we gotta talk about those with you two guys. What's that what? supposed to mean? <laughs> what? Yeah. what? Doc, I think this is a great opportunity to start to get into the, the resilience. And your first chapter, it's titled, Sorry for the Mistake. Why 70 years of stress management and training has left us stressed. So I'd love to talk about that moment in which you had that, that moment of clarity where all the schooling you had or the practices you were implementing did not do their job. And you had to change your ways and what was wrong and what we can do about it. Yeah, so there were, there were two events that happened, Tex. I'll tell these stories really quick. Uh, the first one was um, I was doing a stress management program for a group of medical students. And, you know, if you've ever been to a stress management program, one of the things that you do is you do relaxation exercise with people. So you say, you know, relax, uh, take some deep breaths, close your eyes. And pretty soon I'm in this room of 40 medical students and about half of them fall asleep, literally. You know, I'm hearing, you know, from the other, from all corners of the room. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. You know, I have a, definitely have a job as a sleep counselor, helping people go to sleep. It's going to be amazing. But, you know, we, everybody starts cracking up. So I wake, you know, everybody kind of comes back to the room and they punch their buddies and get them awake. And when I start talking to them about stress, they say, listen, in our, in our profession right now as medical students, we're not ever going to be able to manage our stress. It's just too much for us to deal with. And you can't even, this is what happens when we try to just relax for a few minutes. We're so exhausted, we fall asleep. So that kind of got me thinking about our ability to manage stress very effectively and how difficult it was. The second event happened for me was in, on uh, September 17, 2001. And you might wonder how I happened to remember that particular day. It was because it was six days after 9-11. And we were in Fort Worth. And uh, we had, uh, you know, I'm a psychologist. We had a large uh, uh, organization at that point. And I was called by American Airlines and asked if we could send some teams of clinicians up to DFW Airport, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and do some stress debriefing with uh, employees up there after 9-11. And we were there Tuesday night, 9-11, meeting with people at the call center who were handling calls from people around the world, wondering about, you know, who was on the two planes that took American down that, that day. But the following week, I was just walking the hallways of the terminal, Terminal B at the FW. There was nobody there. And in the book, I tell the story about uh, from one corner of the terminal hearing this cry, this, this woman wailing, not even crying. And it was a flight attendant who was supposed to fly to Paris that day. And they just started flying two or three days before. And I went and sat down next to her. I introduced myself. She had been talking to a buddy and, and she left. And I just sat with her for a couple of hours and kind of just talked her through and walked her through what had happened and the level of stress she had. And she had lost a colleague on one of the planes and she knew others, uh, family members of people. And it was, it was a very, very traumatic time. But her comment to me was that she didn't think she could fly. She couldn't see how she could bring herself to fly that day. And as we talked, there was some point in the conversation where her demeanor changed. And she kind of sat up in her chair and she looked me in the eyes and she said, you know, I see I have to do this for myself, for my colleagues, for my company, and for my country. And she said, I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, but I just got to make myself do it. And she got up. She said, you know, gave me a hug, and off she walked. And, and I was just stunned sitting there hearing her story and wondering how does she find the courage uh, to pull herself to do it together to do this. And it was at that day that I realized that stress management wasn't enough, that there was something much more powerful 
And that was really this concept that I came to recognize through my research was resilience, our ability to not just bounce back from difficult events, but to jump forward from them. And that was what Susan taught me that day very powerfully. It's fantastic, man. And yeah. you, you dive into principles of resilience. So I'd love to have you outline those principles and, you know, situations or examples where they would appear. Yeah. So, you know, I start with my, uh, with my definition of resilience, which is, you know, most people, uh, the standard definition of resilience is, is the ability to bounce back from some difficult events. It's an engineering term. Uh, it's used in the environment. Uh, so, you know, you talked about the ability of the wetlands in uh, the Gulf Coast to bounce back from the hurricane last year. We talked about it environmentally. Uh, but we also talk about it psychologically, and psychologically we talk about it as, again, this ability to return to our normal state, which happens in stress. Uh, you know, when you, you know, the thing that people don't talk about when they describe the stress reaction is the fact that our body goes into the stress reaction very quickly, you know? So if you're stressed out, you know it immediately. Your, your, uh, your heart rates, you start sweating, your hands become a little cold because all the blood is rushing to your central core. Um, but what people don't recognize it is never re is never talked about is your body returns to normal to normal just as quickly. You know, so once the emergency is over, the body is determined, the mind's determined that there's no danger. Your body sends out a whole other set of hormones that say, "Okay, guys, emergency over. Let's return to normal." And the opportunity there is to recognize that maybe there's something new that I can do, something different I can do, and that's a central part of my definition. That is that our ability. That is, resilience is our ability to effectively prepare for, navigate successfully and gracefully, and bounce forward from challenging and stressful events in such a way that we learn and grow from them. So for me, resilience is not just about bouncing back. It's about preparing for situations. If you, could, you know, I check, I check the website every day to see what the watt is. Now, I'm still pretty new to working out. So there are some moves when I go to the to the box that I, I'm not sure I know or I remember. So I'll check the watt and I'll see what the watt is. And I may go on the on uh, on YouTube to see how somebody performs that so that I don't have to spend my energy when I'm there worrying about my, well, let me rephrase. I don't have to spend time figuring out what the workout is. I can just know what I have to do and what my technique is. That reduces my energy that I have to expend when I'm ready to work out by simple preparation. Uh, and that, so that that's a big stress reducer is if we can get ahead of what the action is and move from there. Uh, the real challenge is dealing with it in real time because when it's happening, we're off our rocker. You know, our body and head is reacting to the stress in a, a challenging time. And that's where exercises like mindfulness and being kind of, uh, you know, aware of what you're doing. You know, for me in working out, again, I'm, an, I'm still a novice at this. But for me, it's moving mindfully. It's one of the things that Tony's told me. He said, you know, don't worry about how many you're doing. Worry about how many you're doing correctly. And I'm 67 years old. I don't want to hurt myself doing this. I want to keep doing it. So I want to move mindfully. I don't want to put myself in a situation where I might injure myself. That's navigating in real time. And then the third part is how do you look back at a situation and say, okay, how did it work out? What did I learn from it? What did I do well? What mistakes did I make? What am I going to do differently? And you hear that all the time from athletes. You know, I don't care if you're going to watch uh, – a Houston Astro game tonight, or you're you know playing your own game. Uh, afterwards, you ask yourself these. You ask yourself the question: How am I going to do that better the next time? And that's that bouncing forward, rather than just bouncing back and say, "Okay, that was okay. Now what's next?" 
So we want to ask ourselves those three questions. Those are core to my to my approach to resilience. So I guess within our space, <clears throat> excuse me, the the resilience or you know that answering that question for an athlete, what are you going to do differently? At least in the training paradigm, is the job of the coach, right? It's that adaptive feedback. It's something that providing something meaningful that allows them to progress, right? Whether they even perform the task correct or not, right? The objective is always forward progress. Um, and then going back to, I think, your second, maybe the first or second principle in terms of, uh, I guess, is there a way to chunk out tactics for bouncing forward, right? I guess there's so many different varieties of stress that can be applied to, you know, if we're talking like maybe psychological or social distress, right? Um, or stress. Uh, are there toolkits that you give Oh, yeah. Companies, absolutely. organizations like, hey, you know, and maybe it isn't, you know, it's not managing, but how do you, you know, it, what are some of those tactics? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, I have 10, 10 different tactics I use, uh, but then I also kind of pare them down to what the, what the essence is and what, what I call the shortcuts uh, to resilience. So, you know, what I, let me jump to my shortcuts first, because I think they're really critical pieces. Uh, and, you know, the two key shortcuts that I have is the, fr the first one I call hack your PNS. Uh, so your PNS is your parasympathetic nervous system. And, you know, we're, we're in touch with our sympathetic nervous system. That's the part of our nervous system that's responsible for creating the stress reaction. Uh, and so when you're under stress, your body jumps into that. The parasympathetic nervous system is the one that is related to the relaxation response. That's the one we don't pay much attention to. As I said earlier, our body will return to that normally. That's a function that is, is, is biological in nature. The body wants to re return to homeostasis. It wants to be balanced. Uh, but we can hack it. We can get into it and do things with it that we uh, don't recognize we can do. So, for example, if a, a critical task is to learn breathing. And you work on that when you're, when you're coaching. You're always, you know, you observe your athletes, and if they're not breathing, what do you tell them to do? Breathe. Don't <laughs> not breathe. <laughs> Don't not breathe. Well, unless they're mouth breathers. What? Are you talking to somebody yeah, over here? Yeah. <laughs> I would deviate except them, John. I told you that in confidence, and I'm out of shape. <laughs> yeah, but when you mouth breathe, you're taking in so much more oxygen. That's so right, you, Doc. Oh, that's oh, right. Oh. It's because you guys aren't working hard enough. Mouth breathers. Breathing through those little peg hole nostrils over there, your bird nose. <laughs> you, you, your baby bird bones. You're those bird lips. Um, okay, so we, we got the breathing technique or hack. Yeah. You know, so so another one for hacking is praise, you know, and, and that's one of the things I love about working out is it's pra it's a praiseful environment. You know, you get understand praise? Praise. Yeah, right. You don't know what that means. Well you have to do something good to be praised. <laughs> Exceptional. Yeah, you have to do something good. You know, you're Better fucking you know, mediocrity is mm -hmm. uh, you know, the tree at which you climb daily. So you know, fall down and hit text. every branch on yeah, the you hit down. <laughs> uh, those branches you are know, called so text, uh, loser and failure. Text. Text, one of the things that I tell leaders is, you know, even if somebody's marginal, you want to find something about them that is good. Uh, he's got you know. decent hair. He's got a nice and mullet. That, and That's that, what I go with all know, the some, time. Uh, sometimes it could just be somebody's decent hair that they pick on. You know, yeah. you got to find something uh, that, that you could be praiseful to people about. Your shoulder and neck hair is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, what I like is that, I'm your, not looking for is, is that your beard I'm and shoulder hair is all one length right now. Uh, yeah. Ooh. 
Yeah, it's yeah. called a floby. <laughs> Get a floby text. So we're we're dissecting principles and strategies here. Let's yeah, continue continue the podcast. <laughs> so praise. Uh, uh, you know, one of my uh, you know after we had done the uh, the uh, CrossFit CrossFit games, uh, you know I, I said to one of my coaches, uh, you know I think I'm I think I'm leading our box in the senior category. Mm-hmm. Because I'm the only senior. There you go. And she she said, "No, you're not. Uh, I'm leading the senior category." I said, "DJ, I don't think that's possible. You're not a senior." She said, "I'm age fluid. I can be a senior if I want to. If anybody doesn't like it, they can come up against me." Yeah. So, Tex, you could be you know you could be hair fluid. It's okay. Oh, flow fluid. 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 Uh, You know, you could identify as a uh, clean shaven, uh, you know, hairless monkey. Despite not being clean shaven or hairless, monkey. I think that's, hairless. I think that's well, too I think much you of a compliment, John. Have you, you seen how jacked hairless monkeys are? If you listen, listen oh yeah, they have Google huge hairless, testicles. Google the hairless monkey, the jacked hairless monkey. No, it's, like, uh, that's what everyone it's, aspires it's to It's be. a hairless gorilla. Is by far the scariest thing we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. What is it? Second to a text. non-hairless test. I'm just identifying where I am on the stress curve, and it's <laughs> it's focus and grit right now. I'm trying to yeah. focus. Yeah. <laughs> On yeah, so our you know, discussion. Stress, so one of the things about the stress management model, which is really interesting, is when you think about this stress curve, uh, and again, it's you know kind of the shape of a normal bell curve. The left half of the curve, to about you know seventy percent up the curve, is you know boredom and inactivity. Uh, you know, from the kind of the mid range of the curve, uh, on both sides, it's kind of the most effective stress. But when you look at the old stress model. When you got down past this kind of, you know, 25% into the right side of the curve, uh, it was, you know, danger, uh, failure, and then all the way down to death. Uh, and, and, you know, I said that's just, that's just not the case because what Where's happens alcohol? is when we get past normal stress, we put more energy into it. I was going to say, where's normal alcohol? Uh, where's alcohol on this? There should be like a point alcohol, at which you like... Is, <laughs> Yeah, no, alcohol is definitely, you know, when I talk to people about how they manage their stress, you know, alcohol is like in the top three that people Whoa. bring up. Oh, yeah. I believe it. Yeah. I mean, you know? I mean, isn't that what alcohol was invented for? I don't think so. I think it was for bachelor parties mostly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Weddings. Uh, wait, wait mostly until you guys that. have kids. Wait until no, you guys you know, have I think kids. Another, another way to hack your PNS is what you guys do really, really well, which is, you know, just create a, a fun environment. Uh, you know, joke around, even though none of your jokes are really that funny. That's funny. That's the funniest thing. <laughs> the, I effort, think. the effort is really, really important. That you, uh, well, you know, so, as long as you we guys, think we're funny. One of the things that I say, which is something I think you guys firmly believe, which is as long as you're having a good time, who cares? That's, I think, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's really our motto in life. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I think that's another way to hack your PNS is make sure you're having a good time and you're enjoying yourself. And if you look around and say, I'm not having a good time, uh, then something's wrong. Uh, it, you know, that was that was what happened when I was working out at my old gym. I mm-hmm. just, this is boring. Why am I doing this? It's interesting because uh, if you didn't pick up on it, listeners and, and Doc, it, you know, our organization isn't one that's full of praise. Uh, like uh, achieving the objective is 
kind of assumed, right? Oh, hard work, great job, you're working hard. Get the fuck out of here. Like if you if John were to come up and tell me, hey man, you're doing a great job, you're working really hard. Hey, I Luke, you're doing, you're doing a great job, you're like, working well, really hard. I guess I'm fired. <laughs> <laughs> like, but one thing we do like that I think is but core. I, uh, but you got to remember, man. Like I like I'm I'm sure like uh, you know I mean obviously Doc's a little older than me um, significantly, but uh, the time at which I grew up, at least with mm-hmm. my dad, like I was I can't remember ever being praised. Uh, and like, it was pretty interesting. I talked to my brother yesterday, um, and we were kind of, you know, my dad passed away recently. So my brother and I kind of call and we try to like, uh, you know, talk about things father's day. And he just made a good point. He's like, you know, uh, he read an article that said that like, uh, parents that kind of come in that post baby boomer generation, like the amount of time that they spent with their kids, uh, especially fathers wasn't a high priority. And then if you look at like today, the amount of time that that fathers spend with their kids is like exponential. Mm-hmm. So like, right. I only remember seeing my dad on the weekends and he was never really all that involved. And like uh, now today it's like, we do everything with our kids. And I just don't ever remember like my dad ever being like, you know, you're doing a great job. I just mm-hmm. remember like, uh, if he wasn't saying anything, it was probably a good thing. If I was getting my you know ass handed to me or yelled at, it was another, like, I just, uh, um, it just kind of, as long as nobody was saying anything, I knew I was mm-hmm. going right. So like, uh, whereas today I think people are so like, Hey, am I doing a good job? I need this positive reinforcement. And I'm like, I just wasn't trying. I just was trying to just go through where nobody was noticing what I was doing enough. And you know, as I look back a little bit on that too, cause I hit up my old man and you just kind of think back a little bit. I, I don't recall, not that they, I wasn't provided praise for example, but I recall mostly and embraced and endeared just the advice, you know, just like some of these goofy, sh- the goofy yeah, shit direction. I, yeah. That I, you know, a man with a choice is a man with a problem. Like just stupid shit like that is like, those are the things that resonate with me. And they just seem to be reoccurring themes throughout my life. Not like, Hey, great job on your fucking grades or anything like that. And, and even in training, you know, text will, um, attest to like, I'm not, I don't respond to a, Hey, good job. It's like, ad- I want that adaptive feedback. I want something tangible that I can step onto and step up from, um, and I think that's just a common theme between us three because none of us are real praise hungry. I don't you know. know. I mean, well, was, was Frank McQuilkin uh, dropping you praise and cheering you along? I mean, I, I met I mean, Frank I'm, and I didn't get that from Frank. Frank oh, no. kind of seemed like my dad. Well, I'll tell you, weekends would be go to the office and entertain yourself while he had to f- knock out some. Uh, some that's what I did. We yeah. would uh, yeah. uh, we would take my dad. My dad was a lawyer. We'd take his yellow legal pads and uh, pretty much color on them, and then he'd get mad that we used all of his yellow legal pads. I'm like, well, you brought us <laughs> to the office with nothing to do for eight hours, you know. So, but what is interesting though is that all three of us, I think, the environment we've created here, John, is is one of like. I guess ball busting and having fun and knowing that, you know, shit isn't that serious. Just go as hard as you can and, like, let's have a good time and well, we're party not, while we're doing it. We're not solving cancer. Like, that's mm-hmm. the other thing, man. Like, I think sometimes people don't really put a, like, I don't know, man. Like, they, they align might align the importance o- with... Yeah, like I mean, hey, here's the deal. We're uh, we're helping people become better athletes. We're trying to provide some vision and culture and directive to you know create a training style that's really just trying to empower the person, unlock athletic potential. We're a company that's based on battle the bullshit, which is you know uh, seems so fraught in this land of internet. I I just pray to the day that this uh, terrible experiment called the internet ends, and we actually <laughs> have to get back to the point of like meeting people and calling people and actually like being a real person. Um, and I think the the company is based on that idea of uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna lead this social change um, you know and and really not 
I guess, you know, play into what seems like the easier way, which would just be able to sell fit tea and fucking, you well, know, yoga sleeves. Well, I'd like to get into that, Doc, if you don't mind. Like, yeah, hold this, on. I want to come. Oh, I want to come back to this. I want to come back to this discussion no, no. of praise because yeah, I've, let's been, do it. I've been uh, respectfully listening. And I want to tell you that I'm hearing a little bit of the donters in the three of you. Oh, nice. Oh, okay. uh, which is so I want to call you out on that, which is that you're kind of using this historical experience that you've had or that you imagine mm-hmm. that you've had, uh, which is growing up with parents who weren't praiseful uh, as, as an explanation for why you're not praiseful. Uh, and that, and that to me sounds like a donter of philosophy. I buy uh, so, that. Yeah, I have 100%. Uh, you know, so the, so the research on this is, is, has become really clear over the past several years. Also, I probably might call out a little bit. My wife would, uh, probably want me to, which is just a little bit of a gender difference too. So I think guys have more of a tendency to say, you know, I don't need any praise. I don't need anybody to tell me that I'm doing anything good. Uh, you know, I can handle all this stuff. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's also a bit of a um, mailbox that we put ourselves in, okay. uh, which is that somehow somebody telling us that a thank you, or I appreciate what you're doing. And I'm sure your athletes uh, come to you and say, Hey, thanks for that tip. Uh, you know, and, and I imagine your athletes probably write you a check. Uh, so oh, those yes. are both, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you might even insist on that. Well, I guess, yeah, uh, maybe there's forms of praise. You know, the proverbial good job pat on the butt is something. And I know my folks, I did get, I got that when I grew up, but I never just, I don't recall and remember it. I more, I value more something well, that's actionable. Well, right? here, uh, to catch you guys off, man, like I think uh, as a as a parent, I got three kids. Uh, I look at how I was raised and I tried not to repeat the mistakes. Like there were certain things that I think are just kind of uh, the time, culture, mm-hmm. how it was. Like I remember uh, as a little kid, like my dad would always shake my hand. And uh, I like that was like a big like always would shake my hand. And then I remember like at some point I started hugging my dad and it made him so uncomfortable to the point Mm -hmm. where like I would come in and like literally like, oh, dude, I'd give him this embrace. I'd give him a kiss on the cheek and he would literally lock him up. And then it took like 20 years of this for Mm -hmm. him to finally relax. And I remember like I finally asked him and he's like, dude, uh, men didn't hug. And mm-hmm. if they did, they were those kind of guys. Uh-huh. And like, it was just, uh, so that's like the cultural thing. So like for my kids, like I hug and kiss my kids constantly. I tell them how much I love them. You know what? Like I, like I, I would never want them to leave the house not knowing how much daddy loves them because, uh, th- like that's to me, I think is a mistake, but I think that like, I can't blame my parents for it mm-hmm. because like that was 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, uh, America. Like, you know, you shake your father's hand in this and you know, your father yeah. sits in there and has a cigarette and a drink and you know you don't necessarily see him like so i think there was a lot of like and you know we're kind of in this different generation where like our parents still fit within that Mm -hmm. uh and now we're in this newer generation where you're like dude i want to be involved with my kids lives like i want to uh uh, not uh you know repeat what we view as maybe not the ideal way to do it i think in our company um we don't hug enough is what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) well maybe we do need to to hug it out more we have harry shaw oh it's true but uh i think for us like uh um whenever uh, and and i like to think if you guys do something well or we kick ass on something i'm the first one to uh high five and more importantly pay for 47 moscow mules yes that is another form of cheers i guess yeah we went out to dinner (laughs) after a a fairly successful time and uh we had 47 moscow mules which actually was our three of you uh no there was five of of us there's five of us doesn't make it any better <laughs> yeah it was uh it was good but uh you know what like i i think at that I'm point for that oh yeah we had a good time uh but i think um 
uh, I think what I don't want to have in, in my company is I don't want to have like something not said, like the proverbial passive aggressive, like I'm just not going to say anything and you don't know why somebody's mad. I would much prefer for everybody to put everything on the table, good or bad, and then at least we can mm-hmm. move forward. So like if you're fucking up or not doing what you need to do, you need to hear it quickly. If you're doing something good, uh, you need to hear it fast. Um, if I'm and then unhappy, also, I guess at risk of being like, uh, like the false type of praise, you know, like lack of authenticity. Uh, yeah, we hate that. No. Uh, we call oh, yeah, that. That's, that's right. well, it, it's insincere. And, right. uh, but we see people all the time being like, Oh, you know this. And you're like, dude, but I also think man, like, um, and like you said, man, that maybe this is, um, the difference between men and women is like, I don't necessarily need somebody to tell me that I'm doing a good job. I just assume that I'm doing a good job unless I hear different. Um, Doc, I played in the NFL for 10 years, and uh, the way that I knew that I was doing a good job was when I got a grade, and two, I got to keep my job. So if I wasn't doing it, I got cut. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of works in that light. Uh, but wasn't there celebrations that you had when you were successful? Um, like, like, what do you mean? Like spiking the ball or no. doing, your, doing your touchdown dance? I never touched the ball. <laughs> uh, I played offensive line. Uh, so you got a pat on the butt. Uh, yeah, well, I usually looked forward to those, but uh, this is a <laughs> uh, very, very, very strange piece of uh, information on me is um, uh, I never really ever uh, like was ever, I, I always looked at keeping very even keel when I played, so I never allowed myself to get too excited. I never got down. Uh, I figured right, if right. I just stayed like this all the time, then it was like cold as ice, kind of like a, you know, zero emotion, kind of serial killer. I could go out and do my job and wins and losses didn't necessarily affect me because I looked at the guys where they were big ups big down guys and i looked at the guys that were really good were the ones that were most consistent every week win or lose big play uh you know bad play you couldn't tell whether or not they just scored a touchdown won the super bowl or or given up a sack like i wanted to be that dude that was just literally cold as ice and i think when you put yourself in that mindset you kind of like can't really allow yourself to to like enjoy big moments Because you know that with big highs, it's going to come big lows. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't recommend anybody ever do that because it's a very unfulfilling way to spend 10 years of your life. But for me, it's what worked and it allowed me to do my job. So therefore, it was successful for me. But But so, John, I want to say that I just want to mention that that it's really amazing that within the span of one generation, because it's just been you, uh, you you went from being a kid who didn't get much praise from your dad uh, just to a dad who, you know, spills out praise and, and love to their kids. And that, that, that shows the power. That's the second, uh, you know, the second key shortcut that I have, which is around this idea of how do we create a powerful mindset? Mm-hmm. And you just use that expression for yourself. And that's really the, you know, the big key around resilience is how do we change our minds so we don't look at these situations as being something horrible, uh, but instead something that's amazing. You know, so you talk, you know, you see what, how your kids react to you now, and, you know, you, you feel like you're the luckiest guy in the world when you leave your house and your kids are giving you a hug and told her they love you. So, I mean, how powerful is that? I mean, that just that that blows me away. Well, actually, the best part is, is that my kids are kind of like, Ugh. I'll be like, come here, give me a hug. Give me a kiss. And they're like, Ugh, and I shut away. I'm like, perfect. Bakers. I'm like, perfect. I, I oh. hope that they act like this because, you know what? I told them, I'm like, dude, I'm going to do this from in front of your friends when you're older. I'm going to embarrass right. the hell out of you. And you know what? Like, I think as a as a parent, like you should do that. But like, you know, but the other thing, too, is um, and what I so so nervous of thinking about is like expectation. Like, I always tell them, like, I expect a lot from you. I expect these things, um, you know, and it's like I, I never want to uh, have them think that I'm not uh, involved 
you know, like, uh, like right. we sit in color. Like I always want to know what's happening at school. Like I always want to be a parent that's involved to understand what, what their kids are going through. I just don't want to yeah. be this kind of uh, helicopter parent, which I read a book years yeah. ago about helicopter parenting. Mm-hmm. These parents that have no involvement yet, they swoop in and try to fix every problem. And I'm like, ah, that's why I think these kids are so fucked up today. Yeah. Uh, is because, you know, the, all, all they're looking for is somebody to solve their problems and the parents aren't doing anything to provide their kids the tools to solve their own problems. But I guess, to yeah, link, Doc, to link it into maybe like the, the practical application of coaching, whether you're a strength coach or a sport coach, and you have an athlete who's exhibiting those physiological signs of stress, it kind of does make common sense, right? Like if you have a, if you guy got a guy on the sideline who blew a play or an athlete who missed a lift, it's a big deal. What is the first thing? And like a transformational coach could or should do, you know, calm, calm down the discussion, focus on the positives, AKA praise, right? Hey, slow your breathing, calm down. Like you start to bring that down. It's all these things that, you know, if anyone's whiffed on something or blew a big play and you had a coach that was worth their weight and salt, right? They would they would go through these hacks with you and kind of walk you through it. Dude, and you never you, played in the NFL. Well, <laughs> that doesn't obviously. exist. Oh, no, but that's also, <laughs> but I'm talking, I guess, high school youth sports, right? So hundred uh, percent. I'm not 100%. sure how many NFL coaches are listening to this podcast, except for Canavy. Canavy. <laughs> yeah. The Colonel's listening right now. Right. But I mean, think of like when you're dealing with youth and not, not every coach is like that, but I was fortunate enough to have coaches like that. Right. And even now, like thinking of, when things become traumatic or stressful in the relation, like in a relationship, right? Trying in it, where it's not against you. It's somebody else. Fuck something up, right? Bring it down. Breathe. Hang on. Everything's okay. You're doing fine. Right. Man, so, I, uh, I, you know, I never I, played I, for that guy. Oh, that's all I my think, coaches. I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see a transformational change in that as we see more and more people becoming athletes and committing, not just to, exercise but to becoming athletes Mm -hmm. and how can coaches be more effective not with you know i mean professional athletes may be uh you know certainly john that's been your experience but most of us are never going to be professional athletes uh you know we and few of us will become elite athletes uh, but many of us want to think of ourselves as athletes and what's the best kind of coaching uh for those people you want to be able to give them something that is usable uh and recognizing that you know why the reason you have so few professional athletes and elite athletes is because it requires a certain mindset and most people don't have it. You know what I mean? That, that level mm-hmm. of achievement is not something that's routine. It's something that it, you know, it's hardwired into you perhaps. Uh, and maybe it's the training experiences that you've had. So we've got to have some flexibility, I think as a coach. Well, I, uh, I think, uh, um, when people ask me that it's, uh, True, but I think you have to be able to weather the storm and be able to deal with like I I had so many people, the guys that I know that were good players that didn't progress because they couldn't deal with like the neuroses or the craziness or like of the coach. Yeah, get your fucking head so, out of your fucking oh, dude, ass, you're out of here. I played for Tom Cable who right. would literally like uh like I felt like our whole offensive line was like had Stockholm syndrome. Like we were all like <laughs> like literally battered children and like exhibited. And I remember in one of my classes, we were kind of going through some like psychology of like battered children. And I'm like, sounds just like my offensive line. (laughs) And I think like some guys uh, shatters them and then other people have resilience. And for me, um, it didn't necessarily affect me the same way. Uh, my mom is a pretty tough woman. And, uh, honestly, I told Tom Cable all the time. I'm like, dude, you're nothing compared to my mom. And the hilarious part <laughs> is, is when he met my mom, my mom talked shit to him, which I think was great. My mom's like, yeah, I want you harder on these guys. 
they said you're easy on him and he was like what so he's like uh, your mom's over there talking trash to me i'm like my mom's a hard woman so i think uh i think for certain individuals just being able to manage and navigate these situations of dealing with these crazy ass coaches is why a lot of guys succeed and some don't for me uh i just looked at it like um if this is what i have to just weather and this is what i have to suffer through to get to the next position uh, i'll be fine and i also knew that uh nothing i would do in my life would nearly be as challenging both mentally physically and emotionally as what I did in those previous years. Mm -hmm. So like for you guys, like, I mean, like with a lot of this stuff, I'm like, dude, uh, you know, we went through a lot of uh, difficult times and like there was a lot of like hard stuff and like to, getting to play in the NFL actually felt easier than what I did in college. So well, it was kind of crazy. So, so, uh, so is Tom Herman uh, a, pro a prototype of future NFL coaches? He's the guy who uh, used oh, to coach. Texas? No. Uh, I don't know enough about him, uh, but I think he's he's a um, you know most guys fit within the Bill Belichick model Wait, where it's a, like he's an Urban Meyer disciple. Oh, is he? Okay, yeah. yeah. So uh, like most of the guys that I played for kind of fit within like the Mike Mike Holmgren, Andy Reid kind of uh, Bill Belichick deal, where like you know you'd walk down the halls and Andy Reid would walk by you and never even acknowledge your existence. <laughs> so like you know uh, Bill Belichick, dude, like the guy the the way that you see Bill Belichick up there in the news press conference is the same way Bill Belichick is. Belichick's a big power athlete radio listener, I believe. Yeah. I don't believe so. Big <laughs> lacrosse guy, though. <laughs> yeah. Son played at Rutgers. All right. So in we talk about building mindset, and your whole chapter eight is just about that. So where a lot of the tools that John experienced with his father and mother growing up set him up for surviving Tom Cable. You <laughs> listed five ways to build your right mindset. So if we can go into those, and I guess kind of craft it so maybe parents or coaches can apply these situations to their athletes to help develop them, to prepare them for those college coaches. Yeah, that's great. Uh, thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for finding that text. you uh, that's all test to see if somebody's actually read the book. So, um, Oh, he's the one that read the book text. Yeah. <laughs> one. That I one. got it. I got it. So, uh, you know, so there's, uh, as you said, there's these five tips for uh, developing the mindset, really investing in yourself in terms of how you, uh, the resilience. So uh, the first one is to start with the basics. Uh, you know, and I don't think, you know, I think people always want to jump ahead uh, to where things are. And I love telling the John Wooden story, uh, and we could apply this to um, Vince Lombardi as well. You know, John Wooden started off practice um, every, uh, every spring and summer with his athletes by, uh, do you know what he had them do? Teach them how to put on socks. To teach them how to put on socks and how to lace their sneakers. Uh, because if they didn't do that, uh, then they couldn't really uh, succeed uh, during the year because they might get blisters on their feet, and that would be the end of their season. Uh, Vince Lombardi always started off training. You know how he did that? He was a little before your time probably. You know what Vince Lombardi used to tell his players first day? Mm -mm. Uh, gentlemen, no. gentlemen, this is a football <laughs> so talking about fundamentals and beginning with uh, with the band. What's important about that particularly builds a sense of awareness. And we don't recognize we deal with full situations for us. And until we have a good understanding of what basics are and how we respond, that's critical. And, and for parents and coaches, I think kind of look how your athletes respond to different situations and have, uh, you know, provide them some feedback about what they did when they, uh, you know, had a particular challenge in the athletic field or 
or were pushed to do something different or what happened there when their coach yelled at them about something, how they respond to that. Help people to understand who they are and how they respond. And that's really building that basic self-awareness for people. Uh, the second one is, you know, really about uh, life being a journey and not a destination. You know, and I think in our culture, particularly, we focus on what's the goal, what's the goal, what's the goal. And so, and that's fine. I mean, I, you know, that's the way I work for myself. But along the way, I want to enjoy the journey. Uh, you know, and, and John, again, going back to your description with your kids, you know, razzing them and giving them a hard time, telling them your weird dad jokes. Um, you know, those. Hey, are- how did you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you, uh, we had a we had a young athlete uh, in our in our box yesterday, and Tony Tony's working with him, doing some personal work with him, and I was just li- listening by uh, before we started our class, and and uh, Tony said to him, uh, "Hey, you know what you say when your sister steps on your toes?" Oh, they had been talking about science class. You know what your sister says uh, when she steps on your toes? Mitosis. Mitosis. Hey, oh, mitosis. Get it? Ah, you don't get it. He's not a biology guy. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, uh, that was an example of one of Tony's terrible jokes, of course. Yeah. But you know, it's a thing he loves to do with with uh, all of us, but especially uh, these younger athletes. Is um, you know, just enjoy the moment and appreciate the moment and see things in that spirit. That really makes a difference for people. Uh, third, one of my favorite things to do is, to, as you guys were saying earlier, is not take all this so seriously. You know, I was listening to a, to a podcast you guys had done earlier, and John, I think it was you where you were invited to, you think uh, you thought to do a, a keynote or a discussion about uh, workouts and fitness, uh, but instead you were put on a panel, uh, and, then, and, then, and then you were given the microphone to the panel. Yeah, which is terrible. All these all these serious people were there and you just said, Hey, I'm here to have a good time with this. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. And uh, I just started making fun of people and it uh, ended up, people loved it. They were like, dude, this is so funny. Every time I come to one of these things, it's so serious. And I think the problem is, is that people take themselves so serious and they, and they, they really lose the humor and things. <laughs> and um, something too, that's, uh, is kind of interesting is, um, uh, you know, and I kind of stole this from my kids a little bit in that uh, I see the joy that they do in the small things. And it's pretty like uh, inspiring to see like how excited they get. Like, um, and I know this sounds crazy. Um, every day when we go in and uh, my son gets dressed, he gets so excited to pick out his underwear because he wants the ones with the trucks on them. And like, he's like, oh, and then he picks them out. And he gets so excited to put on his undies. He's about two, two in about three months. Okay. And uh, dude, literally like he runs in there to put on his underwear and is so excited to pick them out. I'm like... Man, if I could, if I could find a sliver of happiness and excitement that he has just in picking out his underwear, dude, uh, my life would be golden if we could find that. And, um, but I think we just kind of end up kind of just getting into the monotony and this, and it just becomes kind of drudge through. And the one thing I just appreciate about my kids is the the joy they find in the little things. So I agree mm-hmm. with you, Doc. That's a home run. Yeah, and I think that's you know, but that's that's a that's a takeaway lesson, uh, which is you know how how do you um, how do you say to your to your to your coaches you work with? How do you say to the people you're training with? You know, what is it about the moment that you enjoyed today? Tell me about a moment that you enjoyed uh, out of out of today's work. And when you give people the opportunity to think about something that they enjoyed, they're able to say it. And then when they say it, they can own it. And that creates that create that creates a neurological uh, pathway for them. 
and they have a memory of that situation happening. You know, here's a, you know, here's a funny story. I wasn't sure if I was going to tell you guys this, but yesterday I back squatted more than anybody else in my class. Nice. And, and, and that's the first time that's happened to me in all the classes I've gone to. Now I will tell you, now, now I've been I've been working out as I told you for about seven or eight months, and I've gone to the point where, when I first when I said, well, you know, I'm a little older, but maybe I can match what some of these guys do, and of course I saw quickly I couldn't do that. Uh, then I said, well, maybe I can match what the, what the girls do. Uh, no, I couldn't do that either. So then I came to well, just kind of match what you can do, and don't worry about anybody else. But yesterday there were just people in there who I for some reason was able to squat more than anybody else. That was a first for me. Uh, and, you know, maybe it was the people, maybe they were new people and they just, you know, they have to lift what they have to lift. Uh, but you know what? I took a picture of my posting on the board. I talked to several people about it. I said, hey, I'm really excited about that. That's going to be a memory that I'm going to hold, uh, not not to make fun of anybody else, just to recognize that there was a day when I did that, because there's not going to be too many days when I do. Uh, so th that simple kind of thing really makes a difference and builds a neural pathway, which when I go back to work out later today or tomorrow, is going to say, "Hey, I'm back, and I can, I can, I can lift more. I can be more. I can be more of a power athlete today than I was yesterday." Nice. So That's the, great. These kind of simple, simple tools uh, make a big difference in in how we see ourselves and how we think about ourselves. Nice. And another interesting thing I enjoyed about the book: you pro provided two perspectives, one as the individual, and the other as a leader. So almost applying the or facing the same stresses or the same situations, but then you gave two perspectives and guidance for each. So what motivated you to put that perspective in the book? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I work a lot with business and uh, the, the motivation for it was to make the book business friendly. Uh, so what happens when you talk to people about stress and resilience, everybody thinks about it in relationship to themselves and what they can do. And it's easy to think about it in that, and that's a that's a big action for people to take. Uh, but I want to make this something that's useful for organizations and for large groups. Uh, and so, a key part of that responsibility is what's the leader's role in managing it. It's interesting when um, I did a presentation to a national wellness conference a couple of months ago, and I presented some data around what. Uh, leaders, CEOs, and executive uh, uh, executive uh, C-suite leaders say are the wellness objectives of employees, and they say things like a uh, work-life balance, uh, being able to work from home, uh, being able to have fun times with the group, uh, those kinds of things. And then they interviewed employees, and what the employees said is, "We want much. We want our workload better managed. Uh, we want to know what our priorities are." We want our leaders to tell us exactly what the strategy is for the organization and how we can get there. And we want them to tell us what we're doing well and where we can improve. They, these guys were like 160 degrees apart. The managers think everybody just wants to sit around and do nothing and just have a good time. The employees are saying, hey, I want to do a good job. Be a good leader. And so what I recognized was that leaders don't have the skills to manage this issue, particularly around things like work, uh, workload management is a very big issue in the workplace. I'm more and more in the companies I work with, uh, the, what, what they refer to as the span of control is increasing. So it used to be that a manager might manage five people, and now they're managing seven people. And the seven people are doing the work of 10 people. Because there's a layoff at the organization. They, you know, Tesla announced 
they're laying off 9% of their workforce the other day. My feeling is they're not going to be replacing 9% of their workforce. They're going to be expecting to build as many cars as they were building before, maybe more, with fewer people. That's the, that's the state of the workplace right now. We're not adding people to the workplace unless there's new business. We're actually cutting down on it, uh, and we're getting people to have to be more agile, more responsive, working what we used to refer to as working smarter rather than working harder. Yeah, and I think Tesla's growth goal is like upwards of 20% in the next two years as well. And they're planning yeah. on reducing force even more. Well, I think they had something about automation, though. As I remember, they were uh, they were coming out with some uh, some way to automate or re- like reduce. Re- uh, I, I forgot what it was, but I, I got to go back and look. But I remember there was some like innovation that they claimed to have that they mm-hmm. were going to they could reduce but manpower. It, but even that, you know. So when I talk about organizations, I talk about uh, resilience in four areas. I talk about it in terms of personal resilience. I talk about it in terms of this workload management. Uh, the third area is around change management because the workplace is constantly changing right now. Uh, and, you know, when you think about, about your athletes, you know, they, they're pressed to change because they're, they have new goals for themselves. Change is challenging, and how do we build systems in for that? And then the fourth area is around success and failure. So we've talked a little bit about praise. We don't talk much about failure. You know, so I would ask you guys, you know, how do you coach people who are failures? Or, or not failures, let me rephrase that. <laughs> hey, I wasn't talking about you guys. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, I was talking about, so it's really about how do you coach somebody who has failed at something? Mm-hmm. That is a very difficult task for most leaders because they get into, you screwed up, you really messed up, you don't know what you're doing, or you hurt our company, and there's no really a positive way. Well, we don't really have good positive ways uh, for developing it. And I talk about uh, the different kinds of failures and how you can approach failure management, as I call it, uh, from these different perspectives of, of different kinds of failures. Well, what different what kinds of failures are there? Because I'm I'm trying to go through, you know, page through my head. Like there's this there's the catastrophic and negligent type of failure. Well, I mean, right? uh, yeah. like uh, I think um, at least in business, uh, failure can be deemed as like missed opportunities. Um, sure, so at, at least the way I think about like, hey, like we might have failed or missed this opportunity. But as I've always told you guys, opportunity is like a bus, man. Another one's going to come. And it just so happens that what we learn from this or maybe this failure is going to set us up to do something better uh, in the future. And, and Luke, you, you've seen that over the course sure. of our company. No, I, yeah. Something doesn't happen. We miss something out. And then all of a sudden, like what we learned in it happens to help us on the next piece of this thing. And I think the problem comes down to is that uh, everybody's so kind of, you know, this is the only opportunity this is the only person this is the only thing Mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of a um you know i don't know a stagnant mindset where i look at like the growth opportunity the growth mindset of like if this opportunity doesn't happen there we are going to learn something we're going to come back we're going to figure out what it was and then when the next opportunity comes we're not going to make these same mistakes well that's the bounce forward concept right and you know that's something that which is yeah i mean dude like my dad told me that it's like man if uh if you can't learn from what was it uh uh my dad gave me a good about the only good piece of information or he gave me many but the good one was uh a wise man can learn from uh his own mistakes a really smart wise man can learn from the mistakes of others and himself so like you know we always think about like hey like what's the mistake that we made uh can we learn anything from it and then what are the mistakes that others are making that we can learn from and if we can foresee you know the mistakes and the problems in the future and we don't make them you know and it's like man you're gonna have a tough life if you got to make every mistake for yourself i mean that's Mm -hmm. i tell my kids that too but i think what's important on that point which i'm agree wholeheartedly 
is mistakes don't just occur in failure. I mean, even in success, I think of whenever oh, we pull yeah. something amazing off uh, that, that we get great feedback on, you know, we, we always do an after action brief and it's usually entitled positively dissatisfied, right? We've come up with that, that term last year and that was our creative yeah. problem solver. And it's just like, well, yeah, we crushed it. I mean, we're going to get five stars on this one, but what did, there's something, we learned something here, right? Well, it's usually text. Uh, no, text crushed it. It doesn't carry does the water. Amazing. Yeah, oh. yeah, you're our five-star guy. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Five-star guy. But um, in, in terms of that, even with the success and failure, if the goal is always forward progress, stress to progress, grow, you know, cut a wide wake, I mean, you have to focus on those elements that were fuck-ups or could be improved on and, like, and put a peg in there and then ask those critical questions, what could be done differently? And then, you know what? It might not work out for your favor, right? But you have to have that longitudinal sure. longitudinal. I guess. Or, I don't know if that's a word. But the other thing, too, is uh, I think a lot of people, and Doc, you could uh, probably speak better on this, I think people have an inherent fear of failure. Uh, I'm sorry, not, exactly. not a fear of failure, but a, a fear of success. And I know that sounds crazy, but I think sometimes people put, like, you know, like things in play to, to defeat themselves because uh, I don't necessarily know if a lot of people are prepared for success. Like, I always tell you guys, man, like, if success is happening, like, just let it happen. Don't fuck it up. Like, uh, I think, like, uh, if something good's going down, just, like, you know, let it happen and let it be organic and let it be good. And then just at some point, you got to take a step back and just, like, let everything kind of take its course. And I think people just constantly just almost try to fuck it up. It's like, dude, like, if, if, if we're winning, like, and we used to say that all the time in the NFL, like, if the other team is having a bad day or I was playing against a guy that was having a bad day, I wasn't, and I told you guys a story about where mm -hmm. I uh, fucking stoked a guy up and all of a sudden he went from having a bad day. I just let people have bad days. Mm -hmm. And I used to every week, my brother called me up and go, how'd it go? I'm like, man, that guy had a really bad day. He's like, man, you seem to get a lot of those people. I'm like, yes. I hope my entire career is, is <laughs> basically predicated on dudes that had an off day. But like, you know, for us, uh, you know, you know, whether it's a good decision or a bad decision, we got to try to make the best of it and keep, keep moving forward and learn from the mistake and then learn from the success as well. You know, that, that was what Jack Nicholas used to say, which is, you know, he has to play well, but other people are going to make mistakes along the way. And he just has to, uh, you know, not encourage them, but just capitalize them on what they can. You know, when I talk about, I just want to mention when I talk about about the failure, I, I group the I group failures into three categories. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the first category are are sometimes referred to as blamable, uh, which is these are these are failures where somebody either purposely or unintentionally failed to follow a process or procedure. Uh, you know that you have a you have a rule for how you do it. You have a certain form that you're going to use uh, in lifting weight. Uh, if you don't follow that procedure, you might hurt yourself. Uh, you have safety procedures in your in your box. Uh, if people don't follow those, you know somebody can get hurt. Uh, so if somebody screws that up, that's a failure of of, uh, of that's blameworthy. Uh, the second failure is where most failures occur, and that's because there's great complexity and uncertainty in situations. You know, it's just the world is very complex. I'm amazed anything gets done, quite honestly, <laughs> uh, because, you know, every organization you talk to, they say, oh, my God, we're so screwed up. And, and the level of complexity, whether it's you know, manufacturing or finance or anything else, is just uh, amazingly challenging. Uh, so these are under, what I call understandable failures. Uh, you know, the system's complex. Maybe we haven't defined the process well enough. Uh, so we have to be a little forgiving, but we want to have that action after action review and say, where's our mistake and what do we have to learn from? And I love your term, uh, positively dissatisfied. I think that's where that plays out very well. 
The third level of failure is really around being on the edge of discovery. And that's where failure is praiseworthy. Uh, so you're trying something new, you're going for a PR, uh, you hit it, that's fantastic. You're going for a PR, you don't hit it, that's fantastic. Uh, because then you're out on the edge, you're trying something new, you're not just staying where you are. Uh, so I think of it in terms of you know, blameworthy, understandable, or praiseworthy. You know, the other thing about what you guys are talking about is you've got a mature model for how you work together you know, and how you're running your business, and, and good on you for that. Uh, and, and probably you do in terms of your athletic work also. Uh, and when I talk about a maturity model, this is what's often described in, in the technology companies and other organizations uh, where, where people are just beyond uh, you know, trying things out. They have a system for how they're dealing with their processes. And one of the processes you look for, one of the signs of a mature model is an organization that has some sense of we're going to evaluate what we've done after we've achieved it. We have some metrics we're going to look at. We're going to evaluate those metrics. We're going to look at where we can improve and, and do better the next time. And when you have a conscious, a meaningful approach to do that, a sensible approach to do that, uh, you know, you're really far advanced of what many other organizations are doing. Even as, a, even as a small business, lots of companies aren't able to do that. So, you know, that's a, I hate to be praiseful to you guys. I know you hate that stuff. Yeah, get us on, uh, get on the good stuff. Well, but good, you know, on, but good well, on you. I'm just really glad that we've snowballed them. Uh, to the effect of like we've uh, actually you know taken an expert and actually convinced him we know what the fuck we're doing because uh, yeah now we're really doing yeah, it. Now, yeah. <laughs> now we're really doing it yeah. we're doing it Jerry no I mean no, I appreciate it uh, I think um, the way that I always wanted to run my company and what I always looked for was I looked for intelligent people that uh, had a niche and could work and do multiple things I, I rather and the analogy I, I rather have like a, a SEAL team of individuals that are high speed that are you know well trained and can execute many tasks more so than, you know, a bigger or slower organization where it's like, you know, trying to turn the, you know, a, you know, a battleship around where it takes a massive deal. I wanted to be smaller and agile and have guys that are, you know, heavily invested and have come in and know the culture and I don't have to come in and teach them. I mean, both of these guys, I mean, Tex came to my seminar in 2009 and I think Luke in 2010 or 11. 10 or 11. And uh, found 11, me organically and then, you know, worked with us peripherally and then ended up coming and working with me. And I always wanted to find people that understood the culture and came to us organically because uh, whenever they talk about power athlete and where we've been, they understand the history, uh, the nuance, they know me. And I don't have to come in and I don't have to teach them uh, what I expect because they've, you know, they've been around long enough to, to really just be, you know, plank holders in this thing. And uh, I always kind of worry as the company continues to grow and we have to add new people, uh, are we ever going to be able to, you know, kind of sacrifice a little bit and then we're going to have to hire people that might not know the, the culture, might not know the, you know, <laughs> the, the nuances of our company and how it works. And we've been very fortunate to find people that fit within this realm. And it's mm -hmm. like everybody we meet, like, you know, understands the mission, very singular minded in terms of like, you know, success and have been, you know, good parts of the team. Like I won't add people just to add people just because I think we need them. I add people when I find people that are useful and people that we need. And I think it's work. I, I don't know if it's the right way, but it's the way that I feel most comfortable with. There, I don't think there's a right way. I mean, we're, everything's fine. Everything's fine. No, <laughs> no, no, that's, uh, you know, Luke, to be honest, there is a right way. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the right way is to be intentional about how you're approaching yeah. your, your work. There's a, there's a right way about how to, how to be uh, intentional about approaching your, your athleticism. It's not by happenstance or coincidence. It's through intentional actions. Okay. And that, that, to me, that's another key component of resilience is this stress reaction happens to us, 
and most people just let it ride. Uh, and when they let it ride and they don't do anything about it, that's when the body starts to break down because there's no remedy for dealing with the impact of stress over time. And that's what really you know, wears down our telomeres and wears down our systems uh, because we haven't taken time to heal and recover. So what uh, you're saying is bouncing forward is important. As long as there's intent, right? you know, yes. it's not right. Yes. And I guess it's not in, like a hindsight bias. It's just intent and yes. execution and staying, I guess, staying the course. Right. And then if you're going to pivot, you rebuild that intent, you re recalibrate and then continue well, forward. Uh, right. Well, case in point, we had the, uh, uh, we interviewed a kid as an intern yesterday and you guys were putting him through your paces and, uh, what did, what did Spanton say? Or what, what did you guys ask him if he could drive a forklift, if he could do anything? And then would you say, can you drive a manual transmission? I got some experience, he says. And, yeah. and then you know what you said? Okay, go in there and drive that truck. Yeah, back that truck out of the spot. And he couldn't <laughs> he couldn't start it because he didn't know how to drive a manual. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is uh, is having a system of, like, one, was he truthful? Because if he had said, no, I don't know how to do it, you know, we would have said, okay, this is a growth opportunity. Uh, you want to learn? Do you want to learn? Uh, by, by snowballing you, and what do we do? Like, in Power Athlete, if you, <laughs> if you, if you throw your cards out there or you try to bluff, we're going to call you on if the bluff. If it stinks like shit, we're stepping in. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so then, uh, bullshit, a bullshitter. But, oh, yeah. So that position, you put him in that position to fail, mm-hmm. and, uh, instead, and Dave, instead of casting PFC. him out, we just, what do we do? We use this as an opportunity. Like, if you don't know how to do something, tell us because if we ask you to do something and you tell us that you can do it we expect you to do it which mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. can't then that leads to failure and that's when you're going to get in trouble you know there there's nothing wrong with not being able to do it and i think that was a valuable lesson for him but also i think the way that uh you know everybody works in the company like hey if you can do this we expect you to do a great job if you can't tell me you can we're going to work with you to do it mm-hmm. and i think that's that so, growth mindset so this is another great point that goes back to mindset uh, which is this idea, and you, you talked about it a little bit, Luke, which is around our unconscious biases. Uh, so one of the things about mindset is that we have these unconscious biases about how we approach things. Um, the negativity bias is one that we have, which is this assumption that, uh, you know, you talked about it in terms of a fear of failure or fear of success, uh, John, and you know, people have this these inherent fears, but they're really biases. They're not based on anything, you know, as you said earlier, you said earlier, you know, we have an expression in our house when things get desperate, uh, you know, this isn't cancer. We're not dealing with cancer here. This is not life and death. So let's make sure we keep our perspectives. But oftentimes we have this sense of catastrophizing and and you guys have a bias against people snowballing you, you know, and so you, your antennas are up for that. And if somebody tries to do that, uh, you, you see it right away and you, you call them on it. Uh, so biases help us in, in some situations to deal with things. We just have to be aware of what they are and make them more, more conscious. Again, that's where intentionality comes into place. And I don't know if there's a difference between intent and intentionality. So if either of you had, were English majors, but the, but the difference for me is that I think intent is how we think about something, but intentionality is how we act about something. And so to me, the intentionality that we manifest in our actions is more, more important than just how we think about something, which is kind of what the intent is. Doc, so it's got to be the intentionality of actions more than just the intent of thinking. 
Doc, one one of my uh, clients years ago when I actually owned a owned a gym and did some personal training uh, was a pretty successful lawyer, and uh, he was a smart dude, very abrasive. Uh, I enjoyed being around him, but I remember one time he was kind of getting into an argument with his wife, and I think she was a DA as well, lawyer, and uh, he used to always be like uh, he would always do what he called. Uh, uh, measuring like, uh, you know, like, uh, actively pinging or trying to check, you know, what he called like confirm zero, which was, are we going to get divorced over this? And it was like how he kind of gauged everything. And like, so when we like, I remember he, uh, he paid for sessions, he booked things and flaked and I got pissed. I was like, yo man, you're wasting my time. And he was like, whoa, 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 are we getting divorced over this? I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> and he kind of brought it up and he told me about his wife. And, uh, uh, like, so that's how he gauged stuff. It's like, it, it, like, is this, uh, is this something that's going to be like a, you know, monumental, like, are we driving a spike? Is this going to end the relationship or is just just something that we got to work on to kind of move move ahead and he'd always be like we getting divorced over this i'd be like mofeta yeah we're getting divorced over this and he's like okay well let's talk and let's be serious <laughs> and so and uh and i just always thought it was like an interesting point to like you know in relationships or whatever and being like okay let's uh let's figure out where we are in the defcon thing you know because everybody just goes to the defcon like was it defcon right. once the highest <laughs> and so like that kind of checking zero and being like hey we getting divorced over this or like you know i just want to know where your mindset mm-hmm. is so i know how to act appropriate and i always thought that uh um that was a pretty good pretty good lesson for me especially uh you know first time really you know being young and training and working with athletes yeah i love that and uh, you know i do the same thing i'll, I'll instead of you know, are we going to be at an eight or nine tell me where we are in our perspective is this you know is this a five or is this a six i'm not going to worry about it until it gets to be a five or six if it's a three or four that's fine you know those are kind of normal situations uh, but you have to have different skills for dealing with a nine than you do for a four. Uh, but I, I love, I love that uh, drilling down, drilling it down with people. So we have a sense of the intensity of it. Going back to intentionality and uh, one word you said earlier that jumped out again in the book, it was forget about balance, build agility. So could you right. talk about, I guess the approach to ag- agility, right? If we're going to build uh, build the company and intentionally make decisions. Still, those are either right or wrong. We can still you, learn yeah, from those. Yeah. And then, kind of, I guess, explain your breakdown of agility in terms of resiliency. Yeah. So agility and resiliency are kind of kissing cousins, and and uh, the notion of it again came out of the work uh, when I would meet with people and they would talk about this idea of work life balance. And this is kind of another myth that is getting tossed which is that there's no such thing as work-life balance. We just have one life. Uh, you know, and when you're at work, uh, if you've got to, if you've got to uh, skip out because uh, your kid has a, a music recital at school, you're going to skip out. Uh, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to have to uh, uh, clock out and take three hours of sick time or vacation time. You just do that because uh, at 8 o'clock at night, if you get a call from a client, you're going to take the call. You're not going to tell your client, I'm sorry, it's 8 o'clock at night. I don't take calls at 8 o'clock at night uh, because we just have one life in how we're dealing with things. So we have to move away from this idea of of multiple lives to just one life. And if we have one life, then how do we maintain and build our flexibility? And that's what agility is about. So agility is really about recognizing the, uh, the need for us to respond to situations quickly, to not let them linger. Uh, to do what I would not what I refer to, but what is referred to as rapid prototyping. So we want to, you know, if something we want to see if something's going to work out, and we don't know if it is, we try it out and see. Uh, we experiment a little bit, uh, and, and that way we don't get hung up in a particular way of 
uh, behaving that may be problematic, which is what resilience is often built to recover from. Something doesn't work. Something doesn't work, try something different. That's being agile. And it really is about the idea of, of building in more flexibility in our actions. Uh, so they won't get, don't get stuck in doing one thing the same time over again. Just on a side note, uh, this term resilience, uh, it seems to become like a really uh, like popular term within, would, oh, within the last eight or 10 years. Like I never heard yep. the term before. And then the yep. first time I ever heard it was actually through the military where I was contacted by this group called the Resiliency Group uh, to go in and work with, um, you know, Naval Special Warfare and to like, you know, start working with, uh, you know, the SEAL teams in terms of training performance. And there was always this big thing of like, family, work, health, performance, and they were trying to create resilience uh, and resiliency in these, um, you know, uh, military athletes. And right. it was just really the first time I heard it. And it's usually when I do hear it, it's connected with the military. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, what is it about this word? I mean, like, is it like, uh, I, I just wanted to know, like, how this thing is really because yeah. it, it's funny, I, I hear it everywhere now. And it's, uh, yeah, now I don't it's know. All over. And I, I just didn't know if was there something that kind of drove it was, um, yep. I love, yeah. I mean, anything yeah. you got on that? That that's a, that's such a great question, John, and and I, I love telling, I love talking about this, uh, because what actually drove it was nine eleven. Uh, so prior to prior to nine eleven, there was a belief, uh, primarily in the government, uh, and among the citizenry, uh, that that we could handle almost any kind of problem that came our way. I mean, we had won the Cold War. Uh, the 1990s was a year of uh, a decade of tremendous economic growth and expansion, and we had a sense of invincibility. And after 9/11, there was a recognition on the part of government and corporations uh, that that we are not in any way invincible, and in fact, we're far from invincible. Uh, that our our electric you know electric grid is tremendously vulnerable. Uh, that uh, corporations are prone to to cyber hacking. Uh, and that no matter what we think we can do to protect ourselves, we can't. And the example I use in my presentations is I tell people about what Ray Nagin said at Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which was 48 hours before Katrina hit. He said, listen, I'm ordering a mandatory evacuation. This is a dangerous situation. I'm not sure that anybody is safe in their homes and you should all get out of town or head over to the Superdome. And I strongly advise it. Uh, in 2008, when Hurricane Sandy hit, Chris Christie said, get out of Atlantic City. We will not be there to protect you. You will be on your own. You better have 10 days of provisions. I'm not sending in first responders to help you and risking their life. That's the deal. If you stay, you may die. And what a shift in, in how that was presented. And today, as a result of that resilience movement, um, we have the government putting all these you know, infrastructure places in pieces in place to try to recognize that we can't protect people. We saw that with Har Harvey in, in Houston. Uh, businesses build, um, uh, 20 years ago, businesses had one IT center. It was housed in their building uh, and it was in the basement. Uh, today they have three IT centers for redundancy, one in the home office, one in St. Louis and one in Zanzibar or you know, someplace far away. Uh, so in case one is hurt or damaged or ruined, they have backup redundancy, all resilience strategies. Uh, and that is why I think we see resilience as being uh, such a popular term because there's a complete recognition. Uh, you know, and, and there's, there was a great cartoon uh, that, I, that I show people uh, that shows, our, shows kind of the city as being, you know, a very successful and um, dynamic place. 
but the undergirding of it is very unstructured and, and limpy looking. And the caption says, robust, but fragile. And that very much describes how a lot of things operate for us. You know, we, we hear, you know, our electric grid could be hacked and we're down. And what do you do? I mean, do you guys have a backup system by your house there uh, to provide electricity? Probably yes. most people don't. Yes. Uh, so that that's kind of the origin of, of resilience and why we've seen, seen it used so much. Now it's expanded out into, you know, you see it in sports every day when a team loses. Uh, we're hearing it in business more and more. And, and it's why I think uh, I should be speaking to every group that you guys can possibly hook me up to. You got it. Sounds like a plan. I'm intrigued on the rapid prototyping because I mean that literally, that is how we operate as new new pro or new opportunities come up. Is we spin up based off of an old model, let's say, and yep. then we choose a course forward. And I, I did a quick Google, and it's mostly in manufacturing. Is there something more pertinent in terms of strategy or uh, uh, management or leadership? Yeah, well, it's easy to take that model from manufacturing and put it into play for yourself. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's just say that you, um, uh, that you want to do a new marketing program uh, and you want to, uh, uh, you know, we're going to have a competition between Tex and Luke and you guys are going to go hit the yeah. road and you're going to do presentations somewhere and you're going to make up, uh, you know, your own presentations that you're going to mm -hmm. do. And, you know, Luke, you're, you have a PowerPoint you're presenting to everybody. That's sick. Lots of animations. Takes lots of animations. Yeah, and, and Luke, your your and Tex, your your effort is uh, all all practice. Got oh. people out there moving and shaking. Sounds, and sounds about pretty accurate. Yeah, you know us okay. pretty well so far. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you know, so then we look at how that works, and if within the space of three or four months or six months, mm -hmm. we have an answer to what's more effective. Right, uh, and that's an example of rapid prototyping, which is that you know you just you try something out and see how it works. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and I've done that in, in my practice a lot. I try something. If it doesn't work, I move on to something else. I don't uh, try to feel bad or worry about why it hasn't worked. I just um, mm -hmm. uh, just or move on. blame to the else. client, right? I think a lot or of people blame, blame the their client. clients. Mm -hmm. If people only understood my, my wisdom more, <laughs> the world would be such a great place. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. No, that's interesting, man. Like yeah, that. So I, I think that's a... That's a um, Although it's used for manufacturing, you're you're seeing it today, uh, you know, among ed many organizations where you, basically it's just saying we're going to try this out, see how it works. Mm -hmm. I want to jump on another term, hardiness. So yeah. the the importance of of challenge and stress for happiness, health, and personal growth. And going back to an episode we had two five nine with Dusty Grooms, and he talked about the importance of new skill acquisition in terms for brain development and. Like John's a living example, learning all these different skills and trying to, you know, teach Luke and I mm -hmm. welding until runs out of at that a, was funny at a track or wire. I don't know. What it's it is wire. Yet. But uh, <laughs> so talk, talk to us about the importance of hardiness and any examples that you've seen where somebody doesn't challenge or stress themselves and then any any backlash that happens. Yeah. So so hardiness is, you know, basically building intensity, building building strength. You know, so for an athlete, it's doing all the preparatory work and anticipating, uh, you know, what what uh, where the success path is and where the possible downside path is. So you're prepared for that. You know, you um, uh, you know when I when I go to work out, the the wad is add five pounds, add ten pounds. Well, I can't do that if I haven't built up to that level before. That's building my hardiness. Uh, you know, what we see in the workplace, uh, what I often see in the workplace is that. 
people haven't given themselves enough of a stressful situation to be able to challenge themselves. So we have to have a certain amount of stress in order to build a capacity uh, to grow and learn. And, you know, my understanding of uh, muscle physiology is that when you push yourselves beyond your limit, that tears the muscles a little bit. And when the muscles are torn a little bit, when they start to heal, they're stronger as they've come back uh, together with each other. That's really a hardiness exercise. Uh, so what I tell people in the workplace is, is um, uh, you you want to you want to do something that I refer to as a VADI V A D I, uh, which is that you want to create variety. Um, um, I forgot the A now. What's the A there? Text. Check that out for me. Uh, variety, uh, adversity. You want some kind of adversity, uh, diversity and intensity. So so VADI creates this kind of hardiness for ourselves when we do things differently and when we, we take on something that's hard, uh, different from what we're experiencing at an intense level. Uh, you know, I think the, the example I would use is that is how I work with leaders and organizations right now. Um, and, you know, the old, the old model of leadership development in organizations used to be that you would send somebody to a workshop or a training that they would do, and then they'd come back and try to apply that experience in some kind of real life situation. Uh, now the model is that you give people a situation, a stress or a challenge to take on, and you see how they handle it. So when I work with leaders, one of the things I say to them is, okay, we're going to talk about some new leadership skill that you haven't used before, and let's talk about a situation where you're going to use that leadership skill. So I'm working with a guy right now who is really smart, Harvard grad, leader in his business group probably the smartest guy in the room, but the problem is he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. And as a, and as a result, uh, he turns everybody else off because he bosses them around and he tells them how things are going to do. Uh, so the assignment I gave him is he has to build a project with five other people. He can, and he can't be in charge. He has to be a follower, not a leader in this situation. That's a completely new skill set for him that he doesn't really know how to do. That's, and my intent is that his the necessity of him having to learn to shut up and listen is going to help him to build his hardiness around really being being a better listener, which is really critical for his success as a leader. Uh, so you would think usually, you know, you want people to take the leadership role, but sometimes you have to be a good listener in order to do that. And he's going to learn the steps in doing that through this particular exercise and experiment for himself. And that's how you challenge. And, and he's already telling me, I don't think I can do it. Uh, that's going to be really hard for me to shut up and let other people boss me around. Uh, but, but this is where his challenge is. Uh, and so that's, that's where um, he'll eventually build, build his hardiness around listening, which will pay off in other situations. Nice. We got anything else, Tex? I do not. Well, Doc, I mean, we've been rolling for about 90 minutes now. I mean, do we, wow, is there anything else you wanted to chit-chat on, or do you want to point any of the listeners? The, I think we're up to nine. We're almost double digits, <laughs> almost 10 listeners. Uh, but wh where do you want people to find you? Where can they look you up? Well, they can, they can find me at citrinconsulting.com. That's C-I-T-R-I-N consulting.com. And one of the things I'd recommend people do, I get, I get amazing feedback from this. And my, uh, my uh, readership list is, is up and growing on this is I have a blog post I do every Wednesday called Resilient Wednesday. Uh, next week, I would not be surprised. Next Wednesday, I would not be surprised 
If it's about the power athlete, I'm not sure Ooh. it could be. It's a great guy, sense of humor is on point, you know. Uh, then maybe uh, we could crack 10 <laughs> listeners. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, whoa, these guys, whoa, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You know, uh, secretly, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, the boss of the company called me up and said, hey, I need to have you come down and work with a couple of my guys right away. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the guys that are replacing us, John? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, I like to call them, like, you remember in, like, Armageddon, where all of a sudden, like, uh, Texas you know. Buscemi. Yeah, like. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. As, like, you know, they want to detonate the nuke, and those, like, you know, Air Force guys come in and ask them to leave their portals. Yeah, those are the guys. Don't worry about those <laughs> yeah, guys. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, so, my, so I think people would really enjoy my Resilient Wednesday, I guess great reviews on it and you know i i send it out on wednesdays not mondays or fridays i get a, a ton of these on mondays as i'm sure you guys do but wednesdays when we need it we need it to get over that hump yeah uh, and then of course my book resilience advantage it's available on amazon and uh, i think people would find it people do find it to be a, a very very helpful resource about again changing our perspective about how we deal with stressful and challenging situations mm -hmm. so that uh they're not that are overwhelming for us but they come very uh, very manageable and, and, in fact, become uh, satisfying and enjoyable for us. Beautiful. Awesome. We, we've added it to our office bookshelf. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Thank so you. We got it. Amazing. Yeah. But thanks again, Doc and uh, Power Athlete Nation. That's another one in the books. Until next time. Bye. 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 Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Dr. Richard Citrin two ways. Go to his Twitter handle, at Richard Citrin. Again, that's C-I-T-R-I-N. Or at his webpage, citrinconsulting.com. And don't forget to get your Power Athlete Symposium tickets. Again, December 7th, 8th, and 9th, Austin, Texas. If you're stressed about whether or not we're going to be sold out or whether or not you're going to be able to get travel accommodations, Learn something from this episode. Don't stress. Be resilient. Get your tickets now. All proceeds go to Wade's Army. Until next time, bye!